can be seated. I like our church. I like the things that we do and that we have outreach and, and we are community and there's just so many of the things that we do. Um, we do have the fall festival coming up and of course I have to talk about that. It's coming together wonderfully. Our details are all coming together and I'm very excited about what we're going to do. Just a couple of quick things. Um, we have everything set but I want a little extra froofiness for it. I want some hay bales and some pumpkins and some mums. And so if there are any of you that would be willing to contribute towards that, just 30 or $40, please come see me and we're going to put some things together just to make it a little froofier. It's not essential, so if it doesn't come in, we're okay, but you would just add pizzazz. The other thing is... Um, I could still use a few more workers. People are volunteering. All the cool kids have signed up to be there. And so if you want to be a cool kid and help us, we need everything from um, parking lot attendants to standing by the Jupiter jumps. Yes, three Jupiter jumps, standing by those to make sure that the kids don't smack each other or that kind of thing. We're going to do it in short shifts, so you'll have plenty of time to play and be involved. I already have my face painting team, but I'm sure you can still get involved if you want to. The other thing is we have the holiday extravaganza for women on the 23rd right here. We're going to be meeting here. We get holiday tips. We are bringing our favorite holiday food. I have four designers that are designing holiday tables that will be right over here. And in the gathering space, we are having 12 vendors come in so you can start your Christmas shopping. So we do it in October so we can get a jump on the season and be ready to celebrate all the good things that we have coming up in the holidays. Yeah. As Pastor Ed mentioned last week, we've been following the lectionary. We do that in between uh, specific series and we go back to this uh, grouping of scriptures. If you're not familiar with the lectionary, it's a grouping of scriptures that are put together and if you were to follow all of those and do that for three years, you would actually go through the entire scripture. Uh, the entire Bible. And uh, so we go back into that, and the section that we have been in most recently has, has really uh, lent itself to focus on the cost of discipleship. These are, these are the parts of Scripture that are the tough parts. These are the parts that make it hard to be a disciple of Jesus. You know, we love, as pastors, we love to talk about all the perks, all the benefits, all the really cool stuff that comes from our faith. But there's some hard stuff. There's some things that that aren't real easy for us, that take sacrifice. And these particular sections are, are, are right in, in the midst of that. So we're going to continue that. Uh, we're going to look at the gospel reading in Mark 10 to start with. Mark 10, 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and crossed the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. 
People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them. One of the challenges of following the lectionary is that we don't get to skip the sections that are tough to talk about. <laughs> um, that we kind of wonder, okay, what's he saying here? You know, what, what does this mean? These are some pretty strong words here. Some pretty tough words, particularly to those of us who find ourselves in a culture where about one in two marriages don't make it. And so, what is he saying? Um, let's, look at, let's look at what's happening here. First of all, when we look at Scripture, and this is particularly one of those, as, as are many, that uh, if you take a section just out by itself, and just take one section, and you try to make a whole principle based on that one thing, you're going to oftentimes miss the point. We have to understand the context that it was communicated in, the, the, the whole of what what is being said. So, so let's look at that here. Uh, the world in which Jesus is responding to here is a world of in inequality. Uh, the Jews had this very high standard, this written standard of marriage. But the reality is their practice was, uh, was, was falling apart when it, when it came to marriage. As a matter of fact, the main reason for that was that women were literally considered property. They were considered a thing. And you can imagine what could go wrong in a relationship where one partner considers the other a thing. Now there are two other forces, there are two other cultural forces that are alive here. The Romans and the Greeks. Once again, the Romans had this high standard. Uh, as a matter of fact, they did really phenomenally well in the beginning of their commonwealth. As a matter of fact, when historians said that the first 500 years, it's almost hard to imagine, the first 500 years of the Roman Commonwealth, there was not one divorce. Now, then they conquered the Greeks. And one historian says that in a military way, in an imperial way, the Romans conquered the Greeks. But in a social and moral way, the Greeks conquered the Romans. And so it basically began to fall apart. As a matter of fact, it says that a male Greek was said to marry a wife for domestic security, but found their pleasure elsewhere. And so by the time that Jesus was speaking these words, these were the three influences in the culture uh, around marriage, and it was pretty much in shambles. So one of the reasons that Jesus is communicating very strongly here is to protect the inequities that were happening in the culture. It was actually to protect women that were being treated um, as, as property. They, they literally had no legal rights whatsoever. A man could divorce his wife pretty much for about anything, but a woman could never um, divorce her husband. Matter of fact, there were, there were two influences, and all of this, even the, even the talk about divorce, came from uh, Deuteronomy. That's what Jesus was responding to the Pharisees about, what Moses allowed. And Deuteronomy 24.1 says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And it goes on 
um, with that verse. But there were two interpretations of this at the time. There were two schools of, of thought. Uh, one is a, a group called the Shammai, and they, they uh, interpreted this very strictly, that basically indecency meant adultery. But then there was a group that was highly influential, um, a school of thought called Hillel, um, and they pretty much said that indecency could be if my wife spoiled my dinner, if she burnt the toast, if she talked to a stranger in the marketplace, if she was disrespectful, off with her. Um, I could pretty much just get rid of her whatsoever. And so again, by, by the time Jesus was communicating the, to this, um, to these people, divorce was running rampant. There was, there was not any sense of security or structure. And so we have to get a sense and understand that that's one of the elements of the context of what, what's being communicated here. There's a second element of context that we need to take a look at. Mark is telling us that this was set by the Jordan in Judea. That is the same place where John the Baptist was preaching and was actually preaching against Herod. Do you remember the story of John the Baptist? And he's preaching against Herod because Herod had married his brother's wife. And she had to have gotten a divorce from his brother in order to marry Herod. And so, he's, uh, so John the Baptist is speaking against this and he ends up getting beheaded. Remember that story? Well, we have to look at who Herod is. This is Herod Antipas, and he was the ruler of Galilee at this time. And he was trying to establish himself as king of the Jews. But what John was saying is he could not ever be the true king of Israel or the true king of the Jews because he had committed adultery by marrying his brother's wife. And so that's the context that this is setting in. Now, as Jesus is speaking, he's reinforcing what John has said. So the Pharisees are trying to trick him, and John had just been beheaded in this place, and Jesus is basically saying, no, what John the Baptist said is right. This is true. So Jesus is not, in this one section, is not trying to make an exhaustive statement on divorce um, and remarriage. He's simply saying, we've got to go back to the beginning. We always have to go back to the original design. That my design was that marriage was to be entered into for life. That this is this idea of two becoming one. And that he will always take us back um, to that place. Now, in other places, um, Jesus will say, Matthew 19, 8. He adds another little twist to it. It says... Um, uh, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it is not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus is acknowledging this horrible influence of adultery in a marriage and recognizes the challenge of healing um, and rest restoration. So he's not saying that Moses was wrong. He's just saying that even in these difficult situations, it is still the ideal. It is still my plan and purpose for marriage to be able to be sustained, for it to be able to, to, to become whole again. And that it's only because the limits of humankind, it's only because of our human limits, the divorce was allowed in the first place. We see Paul give instructions to the early church about divorce in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, but if the, belie but 
If the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound under such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul is recognizing in this new faith, in this new thing that's occurring, there are going to be marriages where one of them are going to come to the faith and the other is not. And he's saying it's best if you remain together. But if not... If one of them chooses to leave, you are not bound, and you have the permission to remarry. Now, these are some of the kind of issues that are going on. These are some of the elements in Scripture. But we are not here to, uh, um, to debate all the particulars of this. Uh, we moderns tend to look for the facts. We go on fact-finding missions and try to understand the exact nuances of this oftentimes. This has been de- debated for centuries in the church. Um, the reason that we're not debating the written law today is because we see circumstances where one might be that, yes, a person has fallen into sin. They've slipped across the line in a, in a fit of insanity for the, for the moment. They committed adultery and they lost their mind, and, and yet they were so convicted by that um, that, that would, their heart has been changed that they would never do that again. And they spend their life working on restoration. They spend their life in sorrow and conviction in their heart, working on restoration. And then you take another person who um, looks like the person of piety on, on the surface. They're the type of person that would never, ever step across the line in adultery. But if you were to go in their home out of meanness, out of self-centeredness, um, out of even cruelty, they are almost ruining the life of their partner. And so that's why we're not here to debate the exceptions. Um, We are well aware of our human frailty. As marriage counselors for 30 years, we have seen plenty of things that we humans do that are really, really stupid. Uh, We see how how idiotic we can be in in the things that we do. As a matter of fact, we've come across some people over the years. We've had a few that we've been sitting with them, and as they're unpacking their story to us and we get to know them, our thought is, you know, you shouldn't be married to each other. And as a matter of fact, you shouldn't be married to anybody. Ever. Now, we don't say that to them, okay? But we've had some that we've thought of that because they're just idiots. I mean, they just are un- unhealthy people. Now, um, now, we've never told in 30 years, we've never told anybody or encouraged anybody to ever get a divorce. Um, and don't plan to do that. Yet we have seen situations where whether it has been uh, infidelity or whether it's been addictions or whether it's been abandonment or whatever, that people have had to make that choice um, and make that decision. Yet we've also seen people in the most horrific of circumstances when both of them are able to lean into God, when they are begin to be able to trust God, even though the law might suggest they might be officially released from, from their marriage because of what we could find in Scripture. That because they lean into the Lordship of, of Christ, He puts them back together. Um, situations that some think they could never possibly recover from. I've seen it happen. I see it happen over and over and over again. And so we want to make sure we're not missing the heart of what, what is being said here that God has a higher way of things. There's a way that we can do stuff that's hard. 
It's not all going to be easy. It's not going to be simple. There's a way to do stuff that's hard. One of the greatest joys we have as counselors is when we work with a, a couple and, and they are in such difficult situations. I remember one of my favorite ones was a, a couple that she said, you just don't understand. I can't stand the way he breathes. I mean, that's how bad it is. Or when they had terrible circumstances and they should not make it. And yet they choose to lean into God and say, you know what? We're going to fight this thing through. And they come back and they say, I'm so glad we did. I, I never would have wanted to go through that. I never would wish an affair on anybody. But because of what we've gone through with the Lord, we are in a better place than we ever have been before. And that's what God wants to do in our lives. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. But he wants us in the hard circumstances of our lives to be transformed. He wants to allow those to work in us and through us so we become more like him. And so we grow more and more in who we are. He cares about our relationships. But he also wants to use our relationships to transform us. That's what he wants to do in all of our lives. The idea of, of two becoming one was God's plan from the very beginning. This is not just, you know, let's get together and see if this works for a while. But, you know, I've just given Brent until 50 years. I told him, 50 years, and I'm going to really reconsider the whole thing. But the, I, well, I'm still cute enough to find somebody else. Um, <laughs> But, the, but God's idea from the beginning was the two become one. This is a new creation. This is a new entity. That was God's plan, that it stays together forever. And so when a marriage comes apart, it's pulling something separate. It's almost like I see it as, you know, the old torture chambers in the, in the Middle Ages where they put you on the rack and they tear you apart? That's what happens with divorce. Even when it's one of those that's inevitable because there's abuse or because there's, there's other situations that are going on in there, it still stinks. It's terrible. It's hard because it's pulling apart the two that are one. God's heart is for us to be one and to be healthy. Jesus said that Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of, of their heart. Hard-heartedness is the inability to have one's heart in tune to God's best intention and plan. Wouldn't you say that we're all, we all have that issue in our life? We, we don't like to release control into his hands. We don't like to line up exactly with his plans uh, oftentimes. God's plan for Israel was that they would be this prototype of this new new people that could be his representatives in the world. And, and yet, because they were unable to align themselves with, with his plans and purposes, um, there had to be the establishment of the law, which was, in essence, second best. And so, when Jesus talks about going back to this ideal plan, he is either an unrealistic idealist, or he, he believes somehow that through his kingdom and through his influence that we can become renewed, that our hearts can be softened, and we can do hard stuff. We can do things that are difficult that we naturally wouldn't do because we are 
way more self-centered than what it takes to really do life and to do relationships and to do marriage and to do it in the ideal way. So he's got to have another plan. I'm choosing to, to believe the latter there. Now, we love to, to talk about marriage and all the great things that can come from it and all the potentialities that, that can happen if we do the right things. Um, but the reality is marriage is hard. You're gonna, if you're married very long, you're going you're gonna to hit some hard spots. If you're married more than an hour and a half, you know, um, you're going to have some, some things that makes it difficult. And so what's required of us? We want to spend just a few minutes talking about three things that we believe that are at the core of, of what it looks like, this cost of discipleship, what it looks like, uh, what it will cost us to actually do things the way that God ideally has planned. And even if you're not married, I want you to think about this in the context of other relationships that you have. We are all in relationship with somebody, whether it's people we work with or family members or whatever. And so listen to this and ask the Lord to speak to you in terms of all of the relationships that you're in. The first thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge, acknowledge our weaknesses. Our greatest strength is understanding and being aware of our weaknesses. James says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. We all have stuff. That is just part of life. We have things we have to work on. I have always been known as being strong-willed. I want my way. I want my way when I want my way. I want my way now. I have pretty much been that way for life. Now, I think I'm nice about it. I think I tend to be very sweet with a lot of this, but there still is that underlying thing of I want my way. And then as I've grown and I've really been convicted of some of this, I found myself saying, I want what I want in your timing, Lord. I still want it, but I want it in your timing. And I thought, okay, I've gotten much more spiritual as life has gone on. But you know, one of the things that I realized is that in my relationship with God and my relationship with everybody. I want what I want in the way I want it. I have a plan for how things should be done. I have a tendency to go, your kingdom come, my will be done. I, God can give me an idea of this is what he wants to do, and because I'm a planner, I have this way of how it should be done. So it's like, okay, I'll take it from here, God. It's fine. I got it, and I have this plan, and then if it doesn't work out according to my plan, I get very frustrated, and I get very disappointed, and I've found that as, as I've worked on that with the Lord, I also see that in my relationship with other people. If you're in relationship with me, and you love me, then this is the way that you do it. This is how you're supposed to be my friend. And so I found in friendships and I found with, with sister-in-laws and parents and an extended family, I would find myself going, well, if they loved me and they're in relationship with me, this is how they're supposed to do it. And then they would mess up. And I would go, why would they get me that present? That is so dumb. I hate that kind of thing. Or why would they plan that for my birthday? That's just wrong. That's not what I want. Until one day, I felt like the Lord really convicted me, and he said, you have to allow people to love you imperfectly. They're not going to always do things the way I want it. 
And I think that we have a lot of wounds, and maybe we could call them perceived wounds, that it's not what you did, it's what you didn't do that I wanted you to do, or it's that you didn't do it right. Like birthdays, I mean, how often do we hear in marriage about, well, you blew my birthday, you just didn't do it right. We have those expectations of, if you love me, this is the way that you're supposed to do things. This is the way that you're supposed to act. And we have to allow one another to be imperfect in that. That's what dying to self is all about. I'm going to let you be imperfect. Now, I can let you be imperfect in a lot of ways. But oftentimes, when it comes to how you treat me, then you really do need to be perfect. You need to do it my way. And so we have to allow ourselves to go, I'm going to let that go. Now, over the years, I have come to value my friendships so much. And I have one friend, and, and she commented that a lot of times in my cards to her, I will say, thank you for being my friend. And she commented on that. And I said, you know, I have grown to cherish friendships. I have grown to see them as, as such a precious gift that in my relationship with my friends, I'm finally at a point now where I can go, I don't have expectations. You don't have to call me this much. If, you know, I don't even care if you remember my birthday. I love you, you love me, and I'm good with that. I can release my friends. But the sticky part comes in marriage because those are my friends or those are my extended family, but we're one. And so you should know exactly what I want in all ways. I know, honey. I and know that. <laughs> so. I don't know why you're needing to tell them in front of the... And, and I think about how much stress and strain and conflict we have in our relationships because I want you to do it my way. I want you to love me the way I think you should love me. I want you to act the way I think you should act. But if we are going to be one, if we're going to live in harmony with one another, we have to die to self. We have to let some of those expectations, some of those things go. And we have to say, I'm going to choose us instead of choosing me. Very easy to go, but I want it my way. I choose us. I choose our relationship over those things that I think I need or I think I want. Now, our culture feeds into this. I, I don't like romance books because of this. I can't talk about them too much because I'm an avid mystery reader, and if I talk about romance books, then somebody will cut me down for being a mystery reader. So, But the thing about romance books is we leave after reading it, and we go, oh, that's how it should be. And you don't act that way the way they do in the book. And so we're expecting our spouses to act like the way that people do in romance books or in movies, and then we get disappointed. We have to allow them to be the way that they are. We can't say you're broken because you don't do this right. We die to self and we say, I choose to be us. But it requires self-sacrifice. And it means we have to work on self-sacrifice. I'm going to hit two and three in about a minute here. Um, number two is develop your self-sacrificing. This is something that we have to work on. It's something, marriage is something that we give into. It's a choice that we make. Healthy marriages, healthy relationships have good healthy habits. 
This is the hard part because we don't always feel like doing this. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of times we don't feel like doing it. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is when people are leaning in to it and they begin to give into the relationship, even when they don't feel like it, that's when the warmth, the closeness, and connection happens. It's an, it's an interesting thing that we can't wait on that to motivate us to give, but when we give, that's when the, the thing that we're looking for actually happens. And so it's something that requires that giving first. And, that, and that's the hard part of this, is that it, we have to choose to give. We have to practice that. So in essence, marriage is hard. It's, it's uh, the, the epitome of considering others more important than ourselves. Uh, in relationships if we're, we're, you know, that aren't marriage, we cannot consider them as more important, and it will have an effect, but it may not be as obvious. But as Janice is talking about marriage, our expectations are so much higher. It'll show up there. Um, and, and that's where we have to practice, practice that, and that's where we have to um, um, develop those habits in our life. And then finally, we have to guard our focus. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is, is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Final thought. Some of you have heard us refer to this before, but it's a principle in relationships. It really happens in all relationships. We certainly see it in marriage. Um, we call it the, the 90-10 principle. And <clears throat> uh, when, when a couple first falls in love, they, I, we get the report. Oftentimes, we do a lot of premarital counseling and you know, these are the couples that are sitting in one chair in your counseling office and they're, you know, they don't need a couch. Um, and, uh, you know, they can't understand why other people have conflict and have, have, possibly have a misunderstanding because our love is different. You know, our love is special and unique. And uh, so pretty much they think they've hit nirvana. They've, you know, they've found the person that's going to meet 100% of their needs. First of all, that's not possible. No human can meet 100% of your needs. They're, they're not God. Uh, the reality is we experience is that you'll find somebody that meets about 80 to 90 percent of what it is that you're looking for in a marriage. The challenge with that is that leaves 10 to 20 percent of stuff that your partner doesn't have. And there's a good chance they will never have. Now, as we see in the counseling um, work that couples can maybe go from about 80 to 90 if they really work on it and put their shoulder to the plow and learn those good habits and they can develop that, but they're never really going to get over 90%. And so it's still going to leave 10% of what I wish I had uh, in marriage, in my marriage partner, they don't have. The challenge with that, and this affects all of our relationships, the challenge with that is that leaves, that means that there's 10% of what I wish I had in life that um, my partner doesn't have, but there's other people in the world that do. It might be the romance movie. It might be the person sitting at the desk next, next to me in the office. It might, it might be somebody that I encounter at the gym. They have things that my partner doesn't have that, gosh, I wish I had. And the unique, the unique challenge of that is that even though it's only 10% of what you wish you could have, if you've never had it, it doesn't feel like 10%. It feels like 40% or 50% or 60%. And... And oftentimes, people begin to think, I have to have that. Now, this affects all of us on a continuum. The lower end of the continuum is it just affects our attitude. We may never even say anything to our spouse. I just get a bad attitude. Uh, they just don't have this certain thing, and I experience other people that have it, and so I just get a little critical, even though I don't say anything. 
You move up the ladder on the continuum a little bit, and now I actually start criticizing my partner, and I kind of pick at him. And, Gosh, I wish you could do this. I wish you, you know, so-and-so coaches his, you know, all his kids, you know, teams. And, gosh, you know, did you hear what, did you see what kind of house they just moved into? And, you know, and so we start actually criticizing. And then, of course, at the upper end of the continuum, we see more and more people today that have decided that I can't live without that. I have to go get that. And they go after that then. Um, the challenge is that when most people get out there, yes, they got the 10%, but then they look back and go, gosh, this person will never be the 80%. They're never going to be the, the dad or the mom of our kids. They're never going to have these core values that we lived our life with. Yeah, I got that cool 10% thing that I'm looking for. And it's a lie. This whole principle is a lie that affects all of us. And it comes down to the hard, one of the hard parts of marriage and all relationships is I have to choose what I focus on. If I choose to think about the 10% and long after that and meditate on that, I'm going to get a bad attitude. I'm going to be critical. I'm going to be resentful. I'm going to disconnect. But if I choose to focus on that part of my spouse that, is, that, is, that carries the nature of God, it's why I was drawn to them in the first place. That can be with a friend. That can be with a, a sibling. That can be with any relationship. I if I choose to think on those things that are good, the end of that verse is that then the peace of God, there's something that we end up with that is of great value. So the cost of discipleship, it'll cost you everything. You have to give your whole life for this. But I will tell you it's worth it. I will tell you the hard things of doing what the nature of God is about is worth it. And as we leave tonight, Preston, you can go ahead and come up as we close. But um, Janice and I would like to, if you're interested, we'd like to give you um, our book uh, as you leave tonight, if you're interested. Uh, we wrote this book for the purpose of, it's called The Making of a Marriage. Uh, it really deals with all kinds of relational things. But uh, we wrote this book as a formation. It's a, it's, it's a relational formation strategy uh, on what are the healthy habits that we do in, in relationships that build this um, sense of, of unity and this sense of oneness. Because oneness is the ideal that has never been given up on. That still is the ideal, that oneness that should never be split apart. Um, but it takes hard work. This will give you a little bit of a framework for what that hard work, work looks like and then what the potential at, at the end is. So there's a whole bunch of them out there on the counter. Pick one up if, if you're interested. Um, Bless you as you go tonight. Let's all stand together. As always, as we go tonight, if you need prayer for anything, our prayer team will be over here at the cross. They would love to pray for you. Uh, let's join together and lift our voices. Praise God from whom all.